0: This is Mass Timber Today and I'm Craig Applegath. This podcast explores the opportunities and challenges of sustainable mass timber construction with experts in the design, building and forestry sectors. In this episode, I talk with Mark Galeone, the Co-Director of Construction Sciences at Elliston Construction and a big proponent of sustainable mass timber construction and technology development. Mark and I discuss the sustainability of mass timber and touch on its impact on the environment. We also discuss paths to increase the cost effectiveness of mass timber and the current challenges preventing the widespread adoption of mass timber in Canada. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mark, welcome to the Mass
1: Timber Today podcast. Thanks, Craig. I've been a listener for quite a while, so I'm happy
0: to finally be here talking to you on it. That's great. Well, you're well known in the Canadian mass timber industry for your work at Ellis Dawn. So why don't you tell our listeners how you became interested in mass timber and how it became such an important part of your career? Well, believe it or not, mass timber is not something on my radar
1: early on in my career or my education. I studied civil engineering, but mass timber was not part of the curriculum there. We studied wood frame construction for a week or two, but it was all two by fours, two by sixes. and uh, I actually became quite interested in building science, which is more about the physics of the building enclosure and how to build buildings as well. And that's in a thread that I carried true to Elaston. And I started in building science at Elistan on this interesting team we call construction sciences, which is like the firefighters of the construction world, solving problems, but also keeping Elaston in the forefront of innovations. And so that's where timber enters the picture. Right around 20. 16 or so the building codes were starting to change in canada and the buildings kept getting bigger and bigger out of timber and that's when our executives came knocking on the door of construction sciences and said hey we're hearing a lot about this timber stuff we don't know much about it can you guys go figure it out and we said we don't know much about it either but this is our job and so i just got handed the timber file and it's been my role and I've been given that flexibility to just start digging and just start making Elliston leaders. I've been committed to learning and executing Timber for the last seven or so years ever since. And so really Timber did come knocking at my door and there was some luck in there that it arrived. And you know this, but for the listeners, I've just been executing this alongside my friend Vince Davenport right from the beginning
0: at Ellistone. So I've worked with you on projects, and this isn't just a job that came knocking on the door. I I sense real passion. What do you find so compelling about mass timber? What is it that gets you uh, rocking on this stuff? Yeah, definitely the passion exists
1: now. Now, once it came to me, and from a personal standpoint, there's this kind of connection to the wood that you feel. I'm sure you've experienced that. Although I didn't know much about timber at all during my upbringing or my education, I've always been an amateur DIY woodworker projects around the home and the things that draw me to that are the same things that kind of draw me to the large scale so the ability to touch and feel the product to sculpt it the ability to manipulate it from a personal standpoint that's what drew me in initially the result is these beautiful aesthetics which you're familiar with and professionally when it first presented itself it was just an area of like tremendous growth for myself i didn't know much about this and this was like it opened a lot of doors for me to just learn that's really what i love doing is just figuring things out and it carried that appeal and then that interest really got solidified and like the passion that's fueled a lot of the growth over the years has been the future promise the timber holds the ability for it to play a role in addressing some of the big problems that our planet faces and that's where I can see myself deriving some of the passion we have to like figure out the details, get it into projects, execute it really well, and just really place ourselves as leaders nationally and hopefully beyond
0: at some point. And what are you and Vince and the team doing now? What kind of projects are you currently working on with respect to Mass Timber? Yeah, I think I mentioned that
1: I've been doing it for now
0: seven years or so, and there's been a really distinct
1: change in that work over those seven years. I think initially for the first couple of years, like I said, this file was dropped on us and we were just fully in learning mode. We were picking up the phone. We were talking to people. Certainly Woodworks was one of our first calls and we were just traveling the country, going supplier to supplier and really just trying to educate ourselves on what this industry is all about. Who were the players and who had different expertise? So the first focus was on education. And then the focus shifted slowly over time to pursuit mode. We thought we had a baseline of knowledge. We thought we could really understand how to execute these things successfully. And so we tried to leverage that learning piece into real life projects. And we had our fair share of failures in that pursuit. We've had our now fair share of successes. We eventually managed to secure quite a few large mass tumor projects across the country, notably Centennial College. Um, a block expansion here in toronto as well as t3 sterling road humber college these are like big institutional and commercial developments which really shifted again our focus from pursuit into now execution full-scale execution at the biggest scale our country has and we've been focusing on learning the ins and outs and the little details that end up mattering both in the design and as a uh, as a contractor, the things that impact our schedule, our sequence, our budgets—all of these little details—we're trying to aggregate the knowledge into one spot within our team. And so, the execution stage has been a lot of fun. We've been working alongside some great teams, some great partners. And one of the things that I get really excited about is the next stage that we're seeing. So, we're we're deep in execution all over the place now on many jobs and. At the same time, we pull our heads up once in a while and look for where is this industry going, and what can we do to play a role in that. So, where the forward-looking phase is where we're transitioning into now, we'll still execute forever, but we want to be able to actually push the industry forward. And given that Elstone has a scale and a reputation, we think we can be a, a market, definitely a market signal, but also individuals to like research and develop and push different types of products and different types of ideas around the country in an effort to make timber buildings as efficient as possible and scale up the piece of the market that we reside in right now. So that's been the trajectory we've had over these seven years. And as you can see, the work's changed quite a bit over the same time.
0: In in terms of new projects, I know you had been talking to me previously about the modular mass timber volumetric modular. What's happening with that? Is that something that you guys are still pursuing? What Where's that going? It's an interesting one to keep track of. Ulston has a modular division. We have, we've delivered a number of modular
1: jobs to date and out of our facility in Stony Creek. And the technology we are been using has been primarily steel-based, steel chassis and used for long-term care homes, student residences things of that nature. And research and development initiative started about a year ago where we said we looked hard at the steel system and we did a carbon analysis of it. And we thought we can probably do better on the carbon front than this. And there's also some interesting challenges with the steel system that we could capitalize on with a different offering. And so we've spent the better part of a year designing a new system, constructing new mockups, and it's currently like an R&D process. And the future of that is for discussion internally right now. We're uh, trying to understand modular's place in the market. It's a challenging business model to run. And it's a, it's a we took on mass timber modular as like a research and development project. And it's a technology we think we've secured, but within the whole ecosystem of modular. And so we're trying to figure out how what role modular is going to play in the industry in the future. And as modular grows and grows in the industry, we hope to see mass timber as part of that offering, because it's uh, it answers it offers a number of interesting benefits, fabrication wise as well as carbon, and aesthetics.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, mass timber volumetric is very innovative. What other innovations are you seeing in the mass timber industry that you think are going places, or that you are really focused on or interested in?
1: One of the first things
0: that struck me with mass
1: timber is that. The timber itself is an innovation. What's different from timber than other building materials like concrete or steel is that those have been around for quite a while and there's very incremental improvements in their adoption and in their performance. When mass timber kind of came onto the scene in Canada, the material itself was quite innovative and we could glue together all these little pieces to make something much bigger. I think there's a number of different people utilizing mass timber in interesting ways. And I break it down into, there's different like prefab approaches that I think are interesting and innovative, and there's different kind of platform solutions that I'm keeping an eye on. And so on the prefabrication approach, you know very well, we're working on some interesting things there with the hybrid timber panel, Dialog yep. have partnered up and we're- A lot of fun and very exciting. Really exciting. Where It's another R&D project. We're looking to extend the boundaries of CLT and what it can do in terms of spans as well as reduce the carbon impact on the floor panels of big commercial or institutional buildings. So that's really exciting. We're learning a lot about research actually through that process and we're heading into full-scale testing next year of that panel. So we're that's one area that obviously we're deeply involved in that we're excited about the future of. There's other prefabricated products that we're that others are embarking on that we're excited to keep track of. And a lot of them come down to there's this kind of notion of a cassette system delivering mass timber scope along with something else. And so people are looking at ways to maybe incorporate parts of your flooring or parts of your acoustic treatment or something else, adding value to the structural scope in a factory environment before it arrives on site is in some ways a compelling challenge and it's something that we're excited about looking at so that's like the prefab area the other area which is interesting is less physical it's more virtual and that's like the platform approaches and so there's always been this kind of notion in the industry of developing a kit of parts and then deploying this kit of parts whether it's columns and beams or room layouts or building layouts whatever it is there's lots of different iterations of it but having a parametric design tool that you can, you can within this platform, deploy design very quickly and increase the efficiency on the design front and hopefully therefore uh, supply, secure supply more easily. And there's a number of different parties around the continent who are really trying to advance this platform design idea with their own kit of parts or their own kind of unique design offerings. And so I think there's digital, along with prefab elements, there's a lot of progress that we're
0: going to be watching for in the digital tool world, both of which are very exciting worlds. Yes. and In fact, we just interviewed Franco Piva of Ergodomas, and he's a big proponent of DFMA, Design for Manufacturing and Assembly, where the whole notion of being able to define what's going to be milled in the plant is key, but also the notion of there being a kit of parts and taking along from not only assembly, but also disassembly, so that, I, I think you're right on target there. Mark, there's currently a lot of discussion about what makes mass timber a more environmentally responsible and sustainable building material. What's your take on the question? You're right that there's a lot of discussion about it. It's, it's certainly one of the motivators for a lot of people to
1: look at timber, and it's important that everyone kind of understands why it is that timbers look towards as a sustainable building material. When we talk about carbon and timber, it always boils down to the two buckets of carbon, right? There's the embodied carbon, which is all the carbon that's required to get the timber to site, the sawmills, the trucks, the gluing operation, all of that to site. That's the embodied carbon. And then, which I hope we get to talk about, which is the biogenic carbon, which is bucket number two. And even if you set that biogenic thing aside for a second, when I mean, you just zero in on the embodied carbon, a lot of the research out there points to mass timber being a significant improvement over an equivalent structure made of steel or concrete on embodied carbon alone. So benefits ranging from 15, 20, 25%. So that alone is a good reason to consider mass timber and really supports its position in like hard research on the, as a sustainable building material. I also like to point out that the only thing that matters is sometimes we always talk about the how the, Planet doesn't care about marketing, right? The planet cares about <laughs> it doesn't care about, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. That's right. It doesn't matter how good you say something is. The only thing that matters is how good it actually is and what the real numbers are. And so like the, really we try to just rely on like the hard science and the research coming out of different institutions because you know what I think doesn't matter too much. In the end it's what actually gets emitted that matters. To matter.
0: Okay, so let's just follow along a little bit further on biogenic carbon, because full disclosure, I'm a a big proponent of tracking biogenic carbon. The argument, as you well know, for it not being counted, is that buildings can be taken apart, burned down or whatever in 20 years, 30 years, and the carbon is returned to the atmosphere. And I would argue back, well, yes, but of the climate emergencies right now. <laughs> if if worried about twenty five years, we've got bigger problems right now. Let's count it. What what's your what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, it's great debate. And I think there's I think there's a lot of interesting points here to make. So I understand the problem the same as you. Like the controversy around biogenic is all about the end of life. What happens to the building at the end? Put in a landfill and decomposes. Does it just release solid carbon? Like why do you get credit for that at this stage? And in my mind, the timing of the emissions does matter. An emission today is worth more than an emission in the future.
0: absolutely. And
1: if you find ways to delay emissions into the future, you just frankly have more time to figure out what to do (laughs) with all the emissions we have today. And the interesting part about mass timber is that at the same time as you're delaying the emission, you have this uptake of atmospheric carbon assuming you've replanted some trees and they're growing and sucking in carbon. And so you can measure that climate impact over a long period of time. But I think the the controversy is all about the accounting part, how you account for it now. And I think I, I don't have a stance on what should be counted or shouldn't count it necessarily and down to the numbers. But to me, I think it's an emergency and store as much carbon as possible in everything possible future building projects from now on, do it as carefully and as durably as you can. Because right. if you're in a sinking boat and you wanted to plug the hole, you're gonna plug it with whatever you have at your disposal and worry more about the long lasting fix once your boat stops sinking. And so That's a good analogy. I always stress that this is an emergency. Don't get hung up over should we count plus one or negative
0: this. And and maybe the contribution that people like you can make in this in this debate is, I think if the concern is disassembly means it going into landfill versus disassembly means that the component pieces could be reused, then I think that changes the debate. So the work you're doing right now on assembly and disassembly might be a really valuable piece of that discussion. So it's I guess it's worthwhile following up as we move forward. I agree with that. Disassembly is hard. I'll put that out there. It's a really difficult
1: thing to do, and there's not much good, many good examples of it being done to date. But I agree that like the overarching idea is you just gotta stop releasing carbon from the fossil pool underground. And one of the mechanisms to do that is certainly to work with the carbon above the ground already. Like the atmospheric carbon comes into trees. We use the trees. Let's try to keep that. Above ground, if we can, by either reuse or different technologies of disposal. But I think the important point is that we're not introducing more carbon from the underground fossil pool into the atmospheric carbon cycle. That's where the balance always lies.
0: Yeah. And I want to pick up on your comment about disassembly as a problem or, or, or challenge. And I think it's worth talking a bit about, I know that right now a lot of techniques for making connections in mass timber members between glulam and CLT and CLT is with screws. And the screws can be put in, but typically they break if you're taking them out. At least that's what I've heard. And so maybe we should be looking at connections that really are easy to take apart, like bolts and plates, they're they're clunkier, And they're a little bit more expensive, but they do allow you to have disassembly take place. And maybe that's something that when we're talking to our clients and we're looking for cost-effective, so we say, yes, but disassembly is key. What what are your thoughts on that? A lot of the design constraints
1: today work against the disassembly notion. We want everything to be fire rated. So everything gets covered up very intentionally. Either it gets buried in concrete or covered in wood and everything gets concealed behind other things, which makes it a bit tougher to access for disassembly. There's a lot of parts that we design into our buildings that make it difficult off the start to take them apart. So I think we have to rethink a number of the approaches because it's not just the structure, it's everything around the structure that makes it hard. Our wiring goes everywhere all the time and our pipes do the same. and so you'd have to disassemble piece by piece, which would be a quite a... Yeah. The way buildings are built today would be a bit of a difficult proposition, but maybe there's opportunities
0: to rethink how some of these things go together. What disassembly looks like. Like, like, look at end result. How do you get the most reusable components out of a building? Not perfect. But what, what's the best? That's that's actually a really cool prototype type project. We should talk about that sometime. That's interesting. I'm sure it's been done. Yeah. And we should probably look around maybe Europe or something. It's certainly on my radar is something that's important in the future because the whole biogenic carbon issue is, I think, really an uh, important and challenging one. And, and we have to have some real answers. Hey, and people are going to look at you, Mark. You're the building scientist. You and Vince. This is something you guys should be out there Yeah, on. that's right. The flip side of that is make a building you don't need to take apart, right, that can just last for significantly longer period of time you know what that's a really good point because one of the challenges we have now is buildings are so function specific and so you'll get a residential building with floor-to-floors that you can't use for anything else as opposed to like a warehouse type taller floor-to-floor meaning you can stick anything in that's another thing worth talking about hey speaking about that what about cost there's lots of conversation about the cost effectiveness of mass timber. Clients are always saying to me, yeah, but is it going to be cost effective from what we're doing? What needs to be done to make it the most cost effective option? Yeah, you're right. We do get the cost question quite a bit. And it I like it
1: because it's very like context specific. So like a contractor has a very different lens on costs than, say, a timber supplier. And we also have a different lens on cost than the developer themselves. And so I think it's like really important to look at what lens actually you're looking through and who's actually giving you the information. So as a contractor, when we think about the cost of the tumor building, it's about the entire project. We, the information we collect is based on you getting a building at the end of the day and everything in it, all scope groups. Uh, all the hard costs and looking through that lens we've been tracking total project costs of timber for the last we probably started this 4 or 5 years ago and 5 years ago the premium that we were seeing across Canada for a mass timber call it a, an office building would be quite high it would be 20 25% premium and when you when you started when we started yes yep. yeah 4 or 5 years ago and then a couple of years ago it would be maybe 10, 15% premium. And then more recently we're getting down into the single digit percent premium. And so when you look at it in isolation, you'd say, this is a cost premium, a hard cost premium. When you look at it over time, we're saying we're approaching cost neutral here. So it's been a declining cost premium that we've witnessed over the last number of years. And there's a number of sector factors that play into that. The Timber supply chain has been maturing. Other trades- All all
0: the trades are becoming familiar with it so they're not just sticking in higher prices because it's like they don't know what to do. There's an
1: education that's been happening nationally, both on the trade front as well as on the design front. Designs are getting better and better with timber and they're getting more efficient structurally as an example. And at the same time, other materials aren't getting cheaper. And so that really helps with the cost parity too. And so when we look at it, it varies a little bit market to market, but we're, we do witness a single-digit cost premium around Canada still. And so you'd say, okay, why is anyone doing this? And the developer looks at this with a bit of a wider lens, right? They look at it not on the hard cost premium. They always look at it from a project return focus. The focus should always be on returns, not on the costs, not on the lease rate, on the like the overall project return which makes, it's a metric that's more transferable across different markets, different cities, different supply chains. And the commercial private sector is looking at on a more return focus. And that's why we're seeing kind of more adoption in different markets, because they're seeing pockets
0: where their returns are making more sense. And those areas are growing over time, I would say. Yeah, and it's key for listeners to understand that the um, project returns also takes into account the revenue stream into the development, which may be higher yeah. because the market for mass timber, uh, because of its biophilic properties is higher. So people would rather work or live in a mass timber project so that you potentially have a higher revenue stream. So it makes the project return potentially a little higher. At least that's what I've been hearing for de- from developers. Yeah. We hear similar things anecdotally through our clients and you know what's
1: clear is like that there maybe is some kind of advantage on the lease up velocity, so how fast people least this space because you know the return of an empty building is zero, right? So having actual tenants fixed in, we hear, again, anecdotally though, that that's one of the benefits that, you know, is driving people towards this market. What can be done to make timber a more cost effective option? And I think a lot of that starts with setting up partnerships early on in the job. And this is like an underrated way to save money on a project. So as we mentioned that the level of comfort with designing, constructing, mass timber building is not uniform across the country yet within the design community, the construction community, or the subcontractor community. The level of comfort with timber is not uniform, and surely over time that might smooth out. But right now there's a range of skills and a range of competencies. And so I stress the importance of trying to eliminate partnering risk by engaging with a really skilled structural engineer, a really sophisticated contractor who is not going to add these A hey, elements aren't going to be bigger than A to be, And the contractor is not going to add this kind of like guesswork premiums or be able to educate the subcontractors that, yeah. hey, you don't have to add 10% to scope A, B, or C. It's actually easier in this way and this way. Or we have demonstrated cost models for these. So I think the partnerships that you strike along the way are actually... It's more of a soft skill thing, but it's the thing that enables all of the efficiencies to just flow easier because many scope groups are impacted and not just the timber, not just the structure. It's, in some ways, it's everything that's impacted and you need a level of familiarity on everyone around the table with timber.
0: Yeah, so agree. And having the um, fabricators and trades at the table at day one is key for the feedback. I think that, to my mind, from what I've seen, procurement models like progressive design build that bring everyone to the table are really key. But from what you're saying as well, I mean, the partnership stretches back to the developer looking at building a team Mm -hmm. just to conceive of the project to start with, so that makes a lot of sense mark what are um, the most inspiring mass timber projects you're seeing out there or that you're working working towards what about them inspires you what do you see out there
1: yeah there's many all over the place we just grew a passion for timber and so we're happy to get to any timber site because we always feel so fired up and inspired when we walk off site and a lot of times when i talk to people about timber and climate change we talk about how Today is not the time for an always decision. It's not the time
0: to do it the way you always did it. And I think That's a, that's a nice quote by the way. Today is not the day time for an always decision. <laughs> yeah, I forget where I
1: heard that from, but I've been saying it for a few years now and it's difficult I find in our industry, working in this industry for the last decade or so, there's a lot of the precedent carries a lot more weight than the present or the future. And doing things the same way for many years is something that people take a lot of pride in and it's a way to keep making always decisions. And so the thing that actually inspires me is when you see demonstrated examples, and there's many of them now locally where a group of people got together, whether it's clients, designers, construction companies, and they found a pathway through a complicated tree where there was a lot of friction to make that decision. And it doesn't have to be a flashy building or anything it could be a, a just a nice timber box small big whatever it's often not the easiest thing to do and a lot of times the larger clients they're less motivated to work on climate change problems because they're not incentivized to make those types of decisions we mentioned it was a premium and so it takes a lot of confident leadership to break that mold and we see it now happening a across the country and institutions and so i'm I'm inspired by the college university sector they kind of really took the lead across the country and said you know what we're going to we're going to look at timber for our campuses and we want to build big timber buildings and in doing so they trained all of us they trained the construction community because we we went with them and we tried to build the They, they a really
0: did birth the community, didn't they? I mean, all so many different parts of it were were brought together by those projects. That's right. And right across the country, it was
1: almost like there was an arms race within the college, university sector. They all wanted their timber buildings and they obviously have an incentive
0: to- And still do, by the way. It's, it's, it's very it's, exciting. <laughs> we're it's, seeing more and more. It's just great. It's ongoing. And it's what is what it's led
1: to is all of us getting better at our core work. and and more efficient and their supply chain has grown as a result of all of these individuals making these decisions where they said we're going to do something different and as a result these buildings are getting bigger and cheaper and more efficient and the private sector is now entering the game and so they've really birthed the mass timber growth that we're seeing today so I draw inspiration from certainly those projects and there's many of them across the country and really the decision makers within these teams I don't know all of them but they no they weren't going to get in trouble for making a concrete or steel building that probably would be successful and they'd get a building but they took a path with more resistance, more chance of failure and they a lot of them pushed through and we have now like a growing industry as a result. Yeah, so no flashy jobs, just all of them these little sleeper cells everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point about the universities and colleges leading the way. So what Kinds of building types could be mass timber, but currently aren't. And how do we get there? We witnessed the college and university
1: sector; they're taking care of. They're very passionate about their timber buildings now, which is great to see. And what that led to is like an influx of uh, commercial office developers, especially the mid-rise players, who I think are have a growing interest in timber over time especially if we beat that cost neutral piece. So I hope to see more traction in the mid-rise commercial world and where eventually the later adopters of timber, eventually we hope to see is like the mid-rise residential sector lean into timber in a more significant way. And I think this is already happening in pockets around the country, but seeing like a more widespread adoption when costs come into line and things like that would be interesting i think the challenge with residential and the reason why they've been kind of taking a stance of waiting and seeing is that the incentives and in certainly the condo development world are set up to maximize the return and largely that means like the lowest construction costs which today is not timber and there's some of the unique parts about timber in the residential world that makes it a bit tougher and for one you can think about acoustics matter a lot in residential more so than in commercial more so than in some other building like a mall or an airport or whatever and so you have beds stacked on top of each other you have to care a lot about acoustics and acoustics is challenging in timber because you have, you have this desire to see all the wood right that's one of the big benefits yes and oh for sure if you see the wood from the underside it means you have to treat it in some way from the top side. And usually you just have to add layers, a dry system, a wet system, resilient things, all of these things just add costs. And so like the cost model that works in residential is just a bit harder to achieve today than other methods of building. So that's why we've seen less adoption in residential, but it's an area that I'm hopeful for in the five, 10 year horizon that they'll come to the table. And we'll, they already are in pockets again, but. We need to find kind of widespread, scalable solutions there.
0: And what do you see as being the most important challenges for the mass timber industry? And how should we address them or will we address them?
1: Yeah, so when we look at projects, again, we always look from the project perspective. And so I actually don't think there's one challenge that's like crippling to mass timber today. And if it was removed, everything would be rosy. I think there's many, we're fighting many different fronts simultaneously and none of them are actually deal breakers they're all just like pain points and sometimes the pain points add up to a project becoming infeasible with timber and I could just list off a whole bunch of them because there are lots of fronts we're working on whether it's regulation and finding and removing friction from like the regulatory process in different jurisdictions or there is construction insurance is always a hot topic again not a deal breaker but it's a pain point that people have you just wish it adds it was, friction. Yeah, it just adds friction to the process. There's subcontractor education piece that is, it is difficult to get on top of because we often do pricing before the trade is familiar with the project, and then the um, aggregate pricing from all these trades indicates if the project's feasible or not, and so that that requires like more ongoing education of different subcontractors to remove that unknown variable. There's some supply timeline considerations, depending on the scale of your job and the prominence of your clients and contractor, you're going to come up with against different supply timelines and planning well in advance, you can easily, you can get over those. But if you are approaching your time for supply and you're not fully coordinated, you're going to have a challenge get, getting supply out because these products are in high demand. And then there's a whole series of considerations on the coordination for fabrication step, are well understood, but they change the process and the timing of work in significant enough ways to could disrupt the flow if you don't have, again, like a strong partnership with a contractor and design team. There's all these little things that us as an industry come up against as challenges. And it's one of those like death by a thousand cuts, like, it's not that one thing killed a project, it's that 10, 1% things killed the project. and also vice versa, like we can turn all of these around given the yet correct circumstances and getting engaged early on enough. We can walk through each of them and plan and prepare for them. It's just when they, these come up as surprises to clients during a feasibility exercise or worse during an actual project, they can like really introduce friction and um, it leads to some tough conversations.
0: Earlier in the conversation, we were talking about how the overall cost has come down over the last five years and it's primarily i guess because of these pain points have been reduced to various degrees so i guess that's the answer is they'll continue to be reduced over time in some ways they're all sort of being addressed more or less so it's just a question of time yeah and
1: i'd say like the cost of mass tumors actually gone up over time like the absolute cost has gone up it's just the differential between the cost of construction has also gone way up. The cost of timber has gone up, but the cost of steel and concrete has gone up more. And so there we have this like narrowing of differential, which making timber more and more attractive over time. And yeah, we're certainly we're on every project we're pursuing increased efficiencies. Specifically, going back to my team, we're a centralized team, so we all sit in Toronto in one spot, but we all work. On projects nationally. And so we're taking lessons that we learned with you guys at Centennial College and we're applying it to project A, B and C all across the country where um, details worked really well here that were efficient. Let's try to replicate those. What details didn't work? Let's change all those. And so from a design perspective, we're able to like iterate much quicker because we're not on a, a two year kind of project cycle, two or three year. We're on a several month because we're just pivoting constantly. And that goes for all of these all of these challenges. Same with insurance, where like, we take it on in house, so we're able to iterate through strategies on an ongoing basis and not on an individual project basis. All these things together are making projects more efficient. And structural engineers are certainly doing the same. There's ongoing research happening structurally and on a fire perspective that are sometimes I like think about the building code as like a whole bunch of knots like on a plate, and you have to navigate through this to get through with a big timber building and research is getting done, which is like loosening these knots. It's like making it easier uh, to get through, which just removes costs, removes some questions, removes some friction. So our the tides are certainly like flowing in the right direction for mass timber. It just, these are also, because we still work on like code cycles and project cycles, it's still slow efforts that take time to gain momentum. But the momentum is there. And I would say that, widespread acceptance is growing in the industry. There are psychological barriers too that I think are less significant now, but they were more significant early on. And when it comes to wood, there's certain instincts at play. When you think of wood, you think of like your back deck. You don't think of big, huge buildings. And so there's, I think, If I go talk to my parents, they're going to say something like, maybe wood is weak, or maybe it's susceptible to this or that, or maybe it's in fear in some ways to steel or concrete. Like, there's like these kind of innate feelings about a product just because of the way that it's traditionally been used. And we see it at Home Depot, we see it in play structures, we see wood in single family homes. Like, every home is made of wood. You don't see big, tall skyscrapers made of wood. And so I think we're, there's this kind of initial psychological barrier that would lead people to that perception. When in fact, the reality of the material, as we know, is often the opposite. And so I think initially, the people that are in decision making roles in a lot of these places are just people too, with their innate conceptions. And so I think we've gotten past that. And there's been a lot of great, what really has gotten from past it is we've built a lot of big buildings. And there's a lot of built examples out there now of wood being this demonstrated product with the strength and resilience and this and that. And so I think widespread acceptance is happening. And I think that's extending even beyond our immediate industry into the more of the public at large.
0: Yeah. And acceptance also because the many of the projects people are seeing are so beautiful. I mean, it's just such a, you walk into a mass timber building and your breath is taken away, literally. It's so so beautiful on the flip side of the challenges coin from your vantage point what do you see as being the most important opportunities for mass timber design and construction in the future and how do we take advantage of them to me the opportunities all come down to carbon again like i think
1: that one of the purposes of the industry certainly is to play a r- role in reduction of embodied carbon and i think the implications of that task are like really significant but I always go back to a point that was made in the mass timber conference a couple years ago in Portland and a speaker got up and he said there's all these great things about carbon but there are ways to that we can screw it up a we don't grow the industry big enough or fast enough to make any difference all we get out is like a, a bunch of nice buildings but it doesn't grow to a scale that matters or b you grow the industry really fast and really big, but you haven't taken care of the forest right. on the yeah. harvesting end. So you haven't done it sustainable.
0: Scaling the sustainable harvesting. Yeah. That's right.
1: And so like in within Canada, I think we have this dynamic exists where we try to grow, we try to manage it sustainably. Again, the planet doesn't care. The planet's like a there's like this global factor, which is say we grow this industry so big that it pushes some of the buyers of wood that are buying today from Canadian sources to Canadian sustainable sources, pushes them out of the market and maybe they go buy from other places in the world where they aren't doing things sustainably. And so the market for wood has grown, but it hasn't done so. It's pushing, it's converting buyers to different markets where there could, it could drive this carbon negative outcome. And so holding this kind of global perspective, I think is important and difficult to keep track of. And jurisdiction that does harvesting has this independent responsibility to make sure that we don't fall into these traps. So it's a big opportunity, I think, that exists, but the scale comes with
0: some responsibility that is tough to keep in check. Mark, that's a really profound way of looking at it, and, and it's, a, it's a nice place to, to conclude and, and to. Wrap up our conversation. I'd like you to tell listeners what are the three articles or websites or books related to mass timber that you would recommend them looking at and why?
1: Yeah, we are hungry for knowledge around here all the time. And so we're always digesting and chewing through what we can get our hands on. I'd say that FP Innovations does a great job with producing resources that are in depth. We're one of the big focuses if you're. If you're past kind of the 101s of what the different products are, if you want to just understand what the, all the considerations, the ins and outs are on design, construction, fire, acoustics, Epi innovations are like the leaders in this space because and they publish something called the CLT handbook that is free, publicly available. You can Google it. And it's just a really in-depth, multidisciplinary, peer-reviewed to learn about CLT construction. It's a really good baseline for anyone like who's hungry for a lot of knowledge and if you prefer a video format i'd say the second resource and something i turn to to learn and stay up to date with what's going on out in the construction industry is a gentleman named ricky mclean of american woodworks he's one of the strongest advocates in north america for timber but he really yeah, thinks- he's
0: uh, always a speaker down at mass timber conference isn't he yeah, he's and he's in fact great. he's one of the the hosts, isn't he? He probably is. He's all over yeah. the place. And but the thing we like about him is that he's he goes
1: way past all kind of the marketing fluff. He just gets really deep into the topics, way beyond the surface. And he runs a series called Timber Talks Tuesdays, where he just films quick how to mass timber videos. You can find him on YouTube or LinkedIn, and they're just like a really good resource. Yeah, we'll put we'll put a link in the show notes for him. Yeah. And then I guess the third thing I would say is not timber specific, but a general kind of anyone interested in construction and like the tides of the industry and how they all work together. I would recommend, and I personally enjoy reading a blog called Construction Physics by Brian Potter, and it really is very long form and it sets the stage for good ways to think about the proliferation of different trends in the construction industry and the different market factors that kind of push against each other. And he takes a really long view. He was like a former structural engineer employee of Katera, and now he's a think tank on construction.
0: And so, Is there we, a particular blog that you could give us a link to that would be a good starting point? Yeah, I can. I'll. I'll you can send it to us and we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. There's
1: many actually. I'll dig through and I'll find some He's a big proponent of productivity and construction and
0: tracing the roots of why certain things have happened in the US. And I'll send you a link for sure. That would be great. And finally, what advice would you offer to our listeners about how they could shift into using mass timber on their building projects if they're not already doing so?
1: Yeah. So to have the best shot of success, you really need to leverage the industry as a whole and the strongest players in the industry and not settle for generic information. I think it's, one again, one of the characteristics of the construction industry that people feel like they need to answer questions when they get asked. But I think there's, they'll say things like, X is always a faster way of doing it, or X always costs more than Y. There's these kind of generic things in the industry, but I'll say that our industry is very dynamic and is very fast paced, and it changes rapidly in time as well. And so when considering something new, you have to not rely on all generic information. I would say dig really deep, could question all of your ingrained assumptions that you might have. Be curious, be engaged, and let the technology and the answers rise out of the timber and let it speak for itself. And that's the philosophy we always try to like ingrain in our teams and our department here is you have to dig deep for real information and let
0: the um marketing stuff flow to the wayside that's very thoughtful mark thank you and I'm, I'm sure as a result a number of people are going to want to reach out to you so can you provide the url that people can reach ellis don and your team through
1: yeah certainly i'm happy if people reach out I'm happy to always talk to individuals interested in timber i think the best way to get in touch would certainly be reach out to me on linkedin at any point but also I can send you the Ellis Don mass timber webpage, which kind of goes through all of our projects, our philosophy, and some of our research and development that's coming up. And it's actually brand new. So you'll have some of the first visitors.
0: That's great. Thanks very much, Mark. That was a really good conversation today.
1: Yeah, really appreciate the time, Craig. You've always been a strong advocate for mass timber and certainly for the work that we've been doing and so really appreciate the opportunity to come and have a conversation with you and i look forward to being a continued engaged listener of your podcast
0: thanks very much and like you i'm very passionate about mass timber thanks The Mass Timber Today podcast is produced by the Mass Timber Institute at the University of Toronto's John H. Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design. Each podcast explores the opportunities and challenges of mass timber with experts in the design, building and forestry sectors to shed light on the future of sustainable mass timber construction. You can find show notes, including references mentioned in this podcast, on our website at masstimberinstitute.ca, where you can also view our current projects and subscribe to our. MTI newsletter. This episode was edited by Derek Wellsman and produced by Sean Shuklaw at the Mass Timber Institute. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Dialog for their generous sponsorship of this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us at the Apple iTunes ranking site. You can also reach us on our website and we'd love to hear from you with any suggestions for future interviews.